you know, to sell the voucher for hundred million dollars, we just need to get us to phase one, phase two, and then get it to our kids. Cause our goal is not to make money on those children. Our goal is to help these kids. On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the story of a young father whose son has an ultra-rare disorder known as Sedegatian type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. My name is Kevin Fryert. Each episode, we will find out what is going on in the life of Sanath and his son, Raghav. We will talk about Raghav's growth and development, ongoing and upcoming research, and the challenges and adventures that raising a child with a nearly unknown condition brings. Come join us to hear the story unfold. Let's talk about fundraising. And that's, an, that's a very important aspect of, of all of our journeys. And I've been very shy at fundraising, although I did, I did raise some money. I've been very conservative and sort of taking you know, I don't ha- I don't have the sort of all guns blazing approach that you've you've had, and I, I think this is a you know it's a daunting problem. It's more daunting than than moving research forward because there's at least someone that can move the research forward. And when I initially thought about fundraising, I said, okay, I said three million, so it's it's um it's thousand people giving three thousand dollars, or it's it's ten thousand people giving three hundred dollars. Um, and can, where can I find uh, the thousand or the 10,000 people that have that money, right? And so that's just how I started thinking about fundraising and, and sort of hoping to divide and conquer. But as I started raising my first 100,000, my 200,000, it, it became obvious that the next set of money is not going to come in easy and it's probably going to be incremental or exponentially harder, right? So how did you approach fundraising from sort of the beginning? Just, just rewind back after your diagnosis, your first fundraisers, how did that go? So, you know, when we started this journey, we knew that we had to raise at the time was 3 million US. And I was thinking to myself, how, how are we ever going to raise this money? Well, first I thought I'm in IT. There's all these big companies and everybody's going to donate and we're going to get this money in like a couple of weeks and we're going to be all good. That wasn't the case. So I reached out to a bunch of companies, even my own, and, and they just couldn't do it because of, you know, various reasons. So we had a friend that was a videographer and we had him come over and we started doing a, a film uh, that we did. We put it on GoFundMe and launched and nothing happened. No one was there. You know, we went on Facebook and very few people donated. And then I was walking down the street and this amazing neighbor of ours, two neighbors actually, came up and said, I want to do a fundraiser event for you. And the other neighbor who goes around and collects pop cans, the aluminum, and uh, he's like, you know, he's like 70 or 80 years old. He does this. He doesn't do it for himself. He re- collects the cans to give it to youth, hockey teams, baseball teams, you know. And uh, five minutes after hearing the story, maybe like say half an hour, actually, he comes knocking on the door and he's like, here's an envelope. And uh, we're like, Bob, what's going on here? And he's like, I want to help your cause. He's like, I'm so sorry about your child. There's more of these coming. And ever since then, he, every couple of weeks, he comes with an envelope of money and supports us. And two weeks after that conversation at a local beer works, they did a giant event. It was like 5,000 people came out, donated a bunch of stuff. And we didn't even, we didn't even organize anything. We just showed up and we raised $25,000 that day. And that day became uh, a news press and we got all this press. You know, I was doing, we were doing interviews like crazy and I'm an introvert person. So it was kind of hard. And I don't, I know you try to believe now, but that's what happens when you do all these things. 
And we started raising money and we'd have one press release that would raise $100,000 and we'd be in People Magazine, it raised $75,000. And slowly this impossible number seemed possible. You know, like, you know, six months later, we're at half a million dollars. A year later, we're at, a, you know, a million plus. And, th and that's what it was like. So, you know, to put in perspective, someone would come up to me and say, hey, let's make a sign for the community. That sounds good. Let's do that. Another person would say, let's do a 1500 person gala. That sounds good. Let's do that one as well. Barbecues, lemonade stands. I think what it is, is if you have a, an amazing community that we had around us, then you can achieve anything, right? And without these amazing people that started and saying, we will help you, we wouldn't be here. So when, you, when we say, how do we raise funds? Unfortunately, it's having a good video. It's being on GoFundMe. It's having an amazing community that's going to support you. And then it's a little bit of luck that, you know, your story will, will touch people's hearts and then move on. And then, you know, because of COVID, we couldn't, we had to cancel our golf tournament. We had to cancel our galas. We had to cancel our barbecues. We had printed signs that were going to Everest. So we, we had sent the company in the U.S. these signs that were custom made that said QSBG 50. A week before they closed Nepal because of COVID. So all these things, you know, because of COVID, we would have raised $2 million this year because of COVID, we're not raising anything. So we felt inappropriate this year, specifically around COVID, to ask for fundraising dollars. And I felt, how can I do something that was socially distanced to help raise awareness? And our recent, most recent endeavor was to ride from Toronto to Ottawa. Ride a bike. <laughs> On the bike. Yeah. Wow, this is fascinating. I, I'm, I'm so out of words just thinking about this community that that came in together to help you from, you know, the, the, your neighbor of yours that would hand over an envelope of, of money to, to people that organize, you know, 5,000 person events in, in around the community is just it's just fascinating, right? It's, it, it again puts back my faith in, in humans and in, in, in sort of the, the human community that, that we will not sort of go, go to ashes or, or, you know, one day the, even if the, even if the world sort of drowns in water, we'll find a way to either, either keep, keep the, keep the community going. And, and this is sort of what gives me the confidence that hopefully one day we'll have treatments for all, all of our diseases, not just one or two, but all of our diseases. So. I think that, what Terry's done is actually very local. Somebody who walks through the neighborhood came to him and we often look, Oh, well, we need to get out to the world. We need to, to go viral. It's like, actually you need to go locally viral first and, and get your, your people around you, your, your town, your city, whatever uh, municipality you live in, those people on your side. And suddenly you've got skill sets and, and help and connections that you never imagined. Yeah, like, I mean, if you come to our area in East York and Toronto, you're going to see several thousand of these East York signs. And, uh, and, and the politician, the local politician that arranged for us to meet Trudeau was like, when he goes and argues our case in, in uh, Parliament, he's like, there's more signs and more support for this one family than there is for, for me, the politician in the area, right? So it's, it, when you start getting these individuals in this community to help you out, it, it makes a big difference. And we all live part of a community. Right. We're all like, I'm in a big city, but I live in a small community. And, uh, and that's what it is. It's, it's getting that help. And then when we rode from Toronto to Ottawa, you know, our message, our message has always been, let's help Michael, let's help the children with SPG 50. And then let's help as many kids as we can. And that's my, that's our message. Right. 
So when I met with Trudeau, I said, we need to do something better. I said, there's millions of kids in Canada, specifically in Canada right now, that are sick, that are dying, that can lead better lives if we just had a national program, like in France and Australia is doing in the US. And I said that, you know, how are we one of the best countries in the world that we don't have a national program? And then, um, and, and I left it at, you know, why don't you go home tonight, tucking your kids to bed, and then imagine while you're sitting on your couch that someone tells you that your child will die from a rare disease. And what would you do? You tear down Canada to save your child. So, so you know, the, the, the goal is that, you know, if we had several million, $100 million, like I pitched an idea for $100 million for us to build the gene therapy program. But if we had two, $300 million, and we're talking about a $40 billion industry, gene therapy is a massive industry. If they took that money and they saw it as a business, but we didn't, and we took these rare diseases and we put them through pipelines, and we did it on a national level. We had, you know, manufacturing nationally. We had, you know, we were taking 10 that could be cured and 10 that were ultra rare that, you know, had no hope. We could build these crazy pipelines and start treating these diseases in a, in a more efficient manner. And listen, we're not going to, like, for kids that are older, we're not going to cure them. But kids that are born with these diseases and we get them part of the early intervention program or part of the prenatal screening, we're going to be able to inject those kids at two, three, four weeks. And, and they're going to lead better lives than they should. And the parents may never have these, this pain that we have. So we've been pitching this national program. I, th I think it's wonderful because, as you said before, you're about 5% of the way there on what gene therapy is and, and the progress that's been made. The issue with gene therapy isn't the genes themselves. It's a delivery vehicle. And the issues that come up with that. So the, the viral vectors, that's common to all these things. So two or $300 million could solve a lot of those problems. And it would just multiply out for how many people it, it impacted and, and improved their lives. Maybe we'll find a nanoparticle. Maybe we'll find whatever it may be to deliver this vector better or the, sorry, this transgene better. But we need to make large investments. And I think the, the PRV voucher, the RPDD status in the U.S. was a great start to that. But I think what they need to do now is, because in, in the U.S. specifically, because RPDD status was meant to be kicked off after you got approval, it didn't help foundations like ours. Because the goal was not for us to cure these diseases. It was meant for Pfizer and Novartis to cure these diseases for us. But that didn't work out. So I think that if they changed the policy that said, if a rare foundation, disease foundation, raised X amount of money, right, that we will give you X money part of phase one, right? Let's support you in phase one, let's support you in phase two, because we don't need, you know, to sell the voucher for hundred million dollars. We just need to get us to phase one, phase two, and then get it to our kids. Cause our goal is not to make money on those children. Our goal is to help these kids. I, I think that the, the status is great to help other disease, to help to get big companies to help us. But I also think that if we enacted something that said, if you're a small disease, a small foundation trying to cure your kids, that the voucher will allow you to get seed funding or, or partially get you the way there. Because we, we as foundations, we probably get 50% of the way there. And then we have to give up our program to a larger corporation that's looking for the $100 million voucher. And that's fine. But at the same time, we don't want to just pass it on because we're desperate. 
that's the wrong way of thinking of things. We should be passing it on to someone that's going to do good. It's actually the way the investments flow through research, the early parts that you guys are in, you know, let's just get to proof of concept non-clinically in an animal model somewhere. Let's show that. Well, that's got a price tag. Once you get going into manufacturing and kids and stuff, okay, the price goes up for each little step. You just need help to get it to a step where it's like, great. Now all I need is someone to take care of those activities. And that's, that's when companies may get interested. I don't think for something like this, I don't know that we should rely on the corporations to come in and save it. No, and, and the reason why is that what we do for five or $7 million would co- cost a large corporation 50. Because the internal, I live, work for a large company, so I get the internal bureaucracy, right? And, and that's fine. That's what it is. But, you know, and I think that's why, again, the RPDD status is good because at least it gets us somewhere. But we need to modify it or create a second one for the ones that are not going through these large companies. Because imagine if Novartis is going to do this, you know, they're going to want, or Pfizer, I apologize for saying Novartis and Pfizer, but they're the, the big elephant in the room, GSA or whoever you want to say, right? They're not going to want to cure a rare disease for $50 million to get a voucher for $100 million. It's not enough money for them to do this massive amount of work, right? So it was a good, a good incentive and it gets us somewhere. But we really need something in the interim as well for when these big companies are not doing these. Because they're going to pick up like Duchenne's and Ty Sachs and, and uh, no, those are, uh, cystic fibrosis, ones that have maybe 100,000 population that fall just below the rare disease threshold. But what about like Sanasanars, which is like 15 kids, 60 kids? I think there, so you said a national program across Canada. I could actually see that this is an international problem because if you go international and you do say, okay, what are the number of kids in the world? Okay. Now you're, you, let's tap into all those, those national budgets, pool them somehow. I don't know what the mechanism is for doing that, but it sounds like there's a, there needs to be a different channel to get these treatments and cures to these few kids. And you can't use the big systems that we have. You've got to go kind of targeted here. And that costs a different you know, level of money, but it costs money it, it, and it should be supported. Yeah, like AMF Telethon, right? The one that started in France that turned into Geniton and Yopesky. That's the way to do it. And I, maybe they're getting a bit too big now because you know they've been around for 20 years and it's become a national system. But it has to be nimble. It has to be almost like a skunkwork pro- program that's kind of, not tied to bureaucracy, right? And because an example would be, you know, you do a gene therapy and it shows a marginal improvement in a mouse. Well, a lot of companies would just shut that down. But guess what? A marginal improvement on a disease that's a life sentence for a two-year-old or three-year-old, that's a good enough for us because that might help our child. So from our perspective, anything's better than a life sentence of death or paralysis or whatever it may be, right? So... And that's a perspective that has changed that has changed quite recently. Even with the FDA, FDA, like say 
10, 15 years ago, didn't quite understand that perspective. They, they always thought, you know, I should listen to the clinicians who know the diseases the best, which is how the society had been thinking about it. And I think the, the AIDS movement was the first movement that basically said, no, no, listen to patients. And then ever since then, for the other drugs that they've sort of gotten approvals, there's more patient engagement in it's it's stark contrast. I was I was listening to someone talk about this uh, patient patient focused drug development meetings and, and sort of what it does to uh, what it helps there with the FDA. Where in one of the conditions, I don't remember which one, the, the clinicians basically said the majority of the symptoms is slurred speech, and patients basically said majority of the problems is my kid's not able to go to school. He's not able to. He's or she or she is not able to lead a normal life, and and they're not able to eat. And, and those are far more sophisticated and, and difficult problems than just saying slurred speech. And, and it's, in fact, it turns out the patients basically said, no, I can speak just fine. You just can't hear me. Yeah. And the other thing I think the FDA, you know, the FDA has been very, has been very good to our, to, to our causes, right? They have, you know, listening sessions and everything else. But I think there also needs to be maybe a, a separate runway for rare diseases. <clears throat> the thought of us having to go do a non-human primate um, especially in COVID era, where it's you know fifty thousand or hundred thousand dollars for an NHP, that's unrealistic for a small foundation like ours, right? Or like or many of us. So I think what has to happen is you know the FDA, and I get it, I get it. They they have a huge mandate, right? But maybe if there was some path that said you know if this is a rare disease with an indication that's so rare that you know that this it's you know there's only we're probably going to cure maybe the whole entire population part of an IND. That we, as long as it's safe, like there's, a, you know, our, our safety studies show that there's no toxicity or very little, that we move the program ahead in a quick manner, maybe without non, not, uh, um, natural history data or proper natural history data, as an example. But again, I, I get it. There's, this is a huge mandate. They don't want to just give gene therapies to everybody and then all these kids dying and then sending back the program 20 years, right? So I, I get it. It's a very difficult thing to do. It's difficult, but it's not impossible. It's a, a problem that you need to manage and you, and you move through. And I think that, as you said, there's got to be a different pathway, particularly for very rare diseases like this, when you're talking double digit in the world that have been identified. That's it's a, just a different problem than, oh, we're worried about population safety if everybody's taking, you know, uh, a blood pressure pill because lots of people are going to take it for their whole life. It's like, wait, we're talking about one kid here and you're changing his life. It may be. Yeah, well, if you talk at the number, like if you go to a pharmaceutical company right now, like even the small ones and you said, will you help me? You know what they're going to tell you? They're going to tell you, are you over 500 population in the world? There's your number 500, right? Take the, the ones that are under 500 and have a special program that says we'll move things quicker for those because guess what? No one's going to touch it. Right. And, and that's that's the magic number that I've been told. And it seems to hold true so far. Having been there, I'm wondering if they're lowballing that. You know, actually, the number's a little higher than that, you know, because once you start competing with, you know, oh, yeah, we've got 500. Well, there's one with 1500. You know, the businessmen come in and say, it doesn't make sense for us to go here versus here. And ethicists could even come in and say that. So you've got to have something different. And I wonder, as you're saying that, you approach a company and what companies say is, oh, you want us to start a program and do this? Maybe it's like, no, could you throw in $100,000? 
you know, and maybe that's the program that that somehow governments around the world could start saying, hold it, if if you invest in these companies, if you donate to these these groups that are trying to do this, they'll be able to hit their numbers and move their own research. You don't have to get involved. Yeah, and our thought was that we built this national when we were talking about doing this company that it was it was really a, a company, a nonprofit and a charity all in one. And when we were talking about doing that, we were going to go to large corporations and say, hey, donate a room. We'll call it the Pfizer room or the Novartis room, ESK room, right? To be fair, though, these large corporations that we're talking about have never told us, go home, don't bug us, right? Never. It's always been, hey, can we give you some resources? Because we can't give you money, but let's help you with some resources. Do you need help with your natural history study? Do you need help with your clinical trial uh, protocol? Do you need help with some legal work? So. To be fair, like, I mean, as much as we, we say, you know, no one's helping us, to be fair, these large corporations have been supporting us. And at least for me, I, I'm assuming other people too, but for me, they've been very generous with their time and with their resources. It's just, they, they, need, they have profits. They have money that they need to make. I don't underestimate the motivation for the people that are actually doing work in those companies when they get to do that type of in in kind work it's when i started working in rare diseases at the very end of my career it it lit my career back up i was more excited um i was you know i wasn't working on something that just seemed like oh yeah it's going out and we'll get there someday it's like no we know these people and so i wouldn't underestimate the fact that you will find friends in those great big corporations who will help you out as they can i'm just i'm thinking though that there should be a way they can give you money because there should be a, a mechanism for them to pool it somehow, you know, and it becomes a fund that works across a swath of diseases. Maybe it's, you know, neurodegenerative or it's autoimmune or whatever the disease is, but that are below that 500 number, the really economically challenged diseases. Or maybe they do like they take 10% of their profits or 5% of their profits and they built a skunk work program within their company that pushes out where it is. And they don't get penalized when um, maybe a gene therapy doesn't go the way that it should. This is not Pfizer as an example. It's Pfizer's, you know, philanthropic division to try to help ultra rare disease, right? So that if one goes south, that's, that's another big problem, right? If they help one of them and it goes south, it, it affects their large corporation. But it shouldn't because they're doing something amazing for us. And I think that's where another piece of it is where, the, you know, the risk versus reward and all these other things. But if they had, like I said, a way for the FDA and for other institutions to say, you know what, they're really doing something amazing here. They really want to help. They're doing something for the greater good. And we really shouldn't penalize them for doing something like that when, you know, a child may go in there and already have a liver disease or a kidney disease because of the condition. And the parents are signing off saying, I'm willing to risk the gene therapy because my child will die anyways. So we'll take the risk and then the child dies because the child wasn't strong enough, but the, but the company was nice enough to say, we'll at least try, we'll give you hope. Right. And I think that's, that's the piece. And people don't see that they see child dies in clinical trial and they don't realize that child's parents, it offered them hope in when there was no hope. And it, and it offered other kids more hope because there was someone that actually worked on this condition that developed a drug and hopefully in one or two years 
other kids would would have an actual treatment. So, look, if if, if we had this concept of, you know, it's gonna like we all take the risk, right? And Jim Wilson's was an exceptional story about they had you know very little insight, and he's in this person died and there was maybe there's some you know other things but that's 20 years or whatever it was 15 years of lost time you know even if they mismanaged it they should have at least said okay you know what whatever happened there happened but we should really continue this because it offers an opportunity for so much more yeah and i think that the the risk reward equation for you is different than the risk reward equation for com- companies like that particularly for their shareholders they're like well you know, why did you do this? And now you're, oh no, this bad news. And actually, if there was a way to, as you say, protect them from that. And it that's where a foundation or something that that they have that's related to them, but is not, you know, the heart of that company. Actually, it is the heart of the company. It's not the center of the company. Um, it's not the it's not the money maker for the company. It's like, no, we invest in this. And we know that this research has to happen and then balance those risk reward equations. It'll be much easier to get to kind of the urgency that you guys are showing where the companies don't have that urgency yet. It's hard for them to get there. They've got to reduce the risk incrementally. And then, and then, you know, then there's the other side of that piece, which is making, getting our children the most support that we can. Right. Because right now, for example, Michael, right now in Canada, we don't really have an amazing early intervention program like in the U.S., right? In the U.S., in, 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 I, I lump in the U.S., I mean, everybody thinks Canada has a great system, and we do when you're in the hospital. But the second you leave the hospital, Michael needs 13 therapies a week. You know, Michael may get one, one a week covered by the government, and then we're paying either 10 or 11, right? And it's not in our insurance companies only cover $800 a year or 1000 a year maximum. Right? It's a bit different system than the U.S. But in the U.S., what happens if you're a child that has no insurance and you're in a state that doesn't have a really good early intervention program? We need to get, also get support for these children to give them the access to become better individuals, to lead better lives. Because, you know, let's say they, like, a lot of them are not going to have drugs. But if you take an autistic kid, as an example, and you give them really good therapy, that child is not going to be severely autistic. He might be mildly autistic as an example, right? So we need to also, it's not just finding a cure, it's also helping these kids when they need it most, which is getting them through these, and the families too, getting them through this hardship, right? So it's a multifaceted thing that we need to do. So Terry, I wanna thank you for your time. Um, this has been fascinating and, and a really good conversation. Um, are there any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners? And could you tell us where they can get a hold of you, maybe to donate or just to, to get involved? So I think if you're, if you're on this beginning of this journey, I would say that don't let anything stop you. Don't let anybody ever tell you that something is impossible. Yeah, curesbg50.org, uh, or you can go to uh, GoFundMe and type in curesbg50. And uh, yeah, every dollar goes 100% to this treatment of our children. And uh, with everybody's support, we can, like I say, cure SPG 50, right? One day. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a treatment and cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4 on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. 
You can continue to follow Raghav's story next time on Raising Rare. <laughs>